We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. A film critic for publications such as LA Weekly, New York Magazine, Vulture, The New York Times, and formerly The Village Voice, the brilliant Bilga Ibiri is one of my favorite journalists working today. And recently, he was so kind as to list Watch With Jen as one of the best film podcasts in an article in Vulture. Additionally, he is a writer-director who's known for the films New Guy, Purse Snatcher, and for assistant directing The Barber of Siberia, Bulga, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule during award and festival season to come back to the podcast. I always look forward to our conversations. We had so much fun with Colin Farrell last March that while talking about In Bruges, we knew immediately that Rafe Fiennes should be next. But first, how are you doing and how's fall of 2022 treating you so far? So far, it's treating me well. I'm doing well. Uh, I mean, I'm doing about as well as one can, uh, given uh, given everything. But um, yeah, things are okay. Excited to talk about Ray Fines. We did actually say in the Colin Farrell uh, that we were podcast gonna that like we're gonna talk, we're gonna do Ray Fines, aren't we? <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, I know. Who knows? Tonight we might think of the next person or the next topic. Yeah, stay yeah. tuned. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Well, I have an idea for who the next one could be. Ooh, okay. You heard it here first. All right. I always look forward to your newest pieces. And I should announce probably for those listening in the future that we're recording this just before Halloween of 2022, in case you're trying to track down things that we're citing here. But Bill Goat, what have you published recently? And is there anything coming soon that you'd like to give us a sneak preview of? Well, at the at the time of speaking, I have just published a, a review of Armageddon Time and 
am finishing up an interview with James Gray and Jeremy Strong uh, that will that will have run by the time uh, this this podcast airs. And who knows? Maybe uh, maybe I will have gotten canceled as a result of it. Uh, I don't know. Uh, there's nothing controversial in it. But, you know, James Gray is always um, great copy. Yeah. And he says some uh, fun things in this interview that I hope uh, people will engage with. Um, Ooh. Who knows? Uh, the, he's got, you know, he, he had he had a couple of good Harvey Weinstein stories and he has um, thoughts on the culture. Okay. <laughs> He has some Ad Astra stories, and uh, we we also got a couple of interesting things out of uh, Jeremy Strong, who's who's a very nice guy, actually, a very nice, thoughtful person. Um, so it was fun to talk to both of them. Um, but yeah, that's kind of uh, what I'm thinking of. You know, I've recently published this uh, oral history of Disney's Lilo and Stitch that I yes, I saw that. Yeah, I love that yeah. idea because it's such a good movie. It's a great movie, and and it's there's an interesting story about how it got made. It's it's funny, you know. A couple of years ago, I did this oral history of uh, the Emperor's New Groove, which was one of the most sort of dramatic and chaotic Disney productions of all time, and was just a, I mean, you know, it was fun to talk to people about it. Although I don't think it was a lot of fun for them while they were making the movie, uh, but it made a great made for a great story uh, and a really fun nerve-wracking emotional story and uh after i did that i thought oh i I should do another one of these this was a lot of fun and i and i kind of know who to talk to now like once you get a sense of how to reach these people and all you know a lot of these people even though they don't work for disney anymore they still keep in touch with one another so you can go to somebody and say hey i'm thinking about doing this who should i talk to and who do you know and they'll put you in touch with with people and that always is a, is a nice end to these things it, rather than just like going through agents who very often yeah. don't want it. agents and publicists who very often don't want to respond to you about anything that isn't you know a brand new movie um mm-hmm. so i enjoyed uh i enjoyed doing that i wanted to do the lilo and stitch one turns out uh it was a very different production it was actually like one of the smoothest disney productions but there was a reason for that and I thought there were, there were some fascinating things uh, dug up in that story as well. I thought <laughs> I, yeah. I enjoyed doing it. Um, no, I loved it I'm too. I'm not sure what and readers thought, but yes, I loved it, and I also loved your piece recently on Athena, which I was so oh, yeah. excited to finally see. I still remember you kind of not being able to tell us which movie you were talking about in august but posting like your notes on it like holy fuck and just like is this still going on and you know and you're like i can't say what movie this is and then finally when okay i can say it's athena now and i was like "Uh oh this is awesome yeah yeah i was really excited to read your thoughts on it because I loved that film yes oh great uh thank thanks uh thanks for that and thanks for watching it Uh, you know it's um I, I love that film. It's my favorite film of the year. I, I so far, and I, yes. I'd be shocked if anything supplants it. Um, and I wrote a review of it, obviously, as well as this piece mm-hmm. I did on the opening eleven minutes of the film and how kind of how they put that together. I'm actually working on another piece now about the ending of Athena, uh, which is oh, wow. more controversial. Um, and uh, I don't know if that'll be out by the time. This podcast there is it might be i would like to think that it will be but uh, i don't know what people will think of it i you know it's one of those things where you uh as you keep working on a piece 
you think of more and more things you want to say, and each of those requires a little more research. Yeah. And you find yourself going down all these rabbit holes. And uh, by the time, by the time you think you were supposed to be done with the piece, it's not, it's nowhere near finished. <laughs> so I'm kind of in that situation right now with this piece, but I would like to finish it uh, in the next couple of weeks. Oh, that sounds really great. Yeah, I love that about writing where you think you know what you're going to say going in and then you realize that you're not even sure of your thoughts until the middle of writing it. And mm -hmm. I think that's really exciting. That's probably why we love doing mm -hmm. what we do. Yeah. There's a great uh there's a great uh quote from E.M. Forster, I think, which is um how do I know what I think until I see what I say? Um, oh, that's good. Yeah. Or how will I know what I? Or some, uh, I'm probably not saying it correctly. Um, but yeah, it's basically about how basically it's in the writing that you decide uh, that you realize what your thoughts are. Yeah. And I find that is, uh, you know, I find that's very much true of myself. I know a lot of people who aren't that way. They kind of know exactly what they think. They know mm -hmm. what they want to say. They outline their pieces. I've never outlined a piece. It's it. I probably should be able to, but I, I just I've never been able to do this because mm -hmm. I just kind of start, and somewhere along the way, somewhere usually too late, but like halfway through the piece, I'm like, oh wait, this is what I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. I remember talking to someone, and they're like, well, when I get stumped, I just move to the next section of the piece. And I'm like, well, how do you get there though without the previous section and and they're yeah. like, that's crazy making that you have to write the, I'm like, that's just how I work. Yeah. Yeah. I've worked all sorts of different ways. I think just over the years, uh, because I, I, I often write so much, you know, especially with reviews, like weekly oh, reviews, yeah. you're writing multiple reviews a week, very often. So I, after about six months or so, I tire of a process and, and move on to a different way of doing things. And I don't do that consciously. It's just, I find myself incapable of working the way i've been working and yeah you get burned I, out yeah and i scramble and then and then something happens that leads to the next piece and i think okay and then the next time i wind up doing the same thing I'm, oh i guess this is my process now <laughs> <laughs> this is your new thing yes yeah. well as mentioned in the introduction the reason that bilga is back today is to celebrate and analyze the career and range of the gifted british actor director, producer of stage and screen, Rafe Vines, who made his feature debut in Wuthering Heights and received his first Oscar nomination for his villainous turn in Schindler's List. In early films and successes like Quiz Show, The English Patient, and more, the classically handsome Vines showed his great versatility as a performer, and his career has only gotten richer with time as he's alternated between the astronomically successful Harry Potter series, where he portrayed the terrifying villain Voldemort, or he who must not be mentioned, or he who must not be named, and James, the James Bond series, where he starred as M in the newest films. And his old art house roles, which is where we first became acquainted with him in films like Spider, The Constant Gardener, In Bruges, and others, making his directorial debut with Coriolanus and then quickly following it up with The Invisible Woman, both of which we'll get into soon, along with his turns in Sunshine, The End of the Affair, and The Dig. 
There's a lot to consider when it comes to Ray Fiennes, but let's start with the man himself. So, Bilgo, what do you think it is that makes him such a remarkable, diverse, and charismatic actor? I should have an answer for that, <laughs> shouldn't I? Um, he has incredible range uh, and, and incredible intensity. Uh, you know, those are things that other actors have as well. In fact, you know, Colin Farrell is also yeah. a very intense actor. But the thing about Ray Fiennes is there is a hint of menace mm-hmm. in everything he does. And and that menace is... Maybe menace isn't the right word, but it's a kind of power. And it's a, it's a kind of power yes. that you don't quite know what where it's going to go or how it's going to be channeled which which is which leads to you know the, the great goal i think of any performance which is unpredictability um he's uh yeah i mean he's done all sorts of parts right i mean he's done he's done romantic leads he's done yeah supernatural villains he's done comedy you know, avuncular yeah. characters he's done you know, he's done comedies, he's done action movies, he's done thrillers, he's done romantic movies, he's done, you know, something like, I mean, he can play the, a kind of villain like Voldemort, right? But then mm-hmm. he can do the villain in in Bruges, right? Yeah. Which is like the, somehow the exact opposite of Voldemort and in its own way, even more unpredictable and terrifying. Yes. Um, and and then he can do a movie like Sunshine, you know, which where he plays three parts. Um, yes. And uh, each... Each character with some similarities and uh, some stark differences, you know. And um, I will say, I just saw Ray Fiennes on stage this week. Oh, uh, he's, did you? he's in New York uh, performing in this play called Straight Line Crazy. Where oh, he plays, I heard he's amazing in that. Yeah, well, he plays Robert Moses. Um, and, uh, you know, Robert Moses, who... Uh, for decades, basically, uh, completely changed the the face of New York uh, and environs. Who built the highway system around New York? Um, who built a lot of the parks around New York? Who basically turned Long Island into what it is today? Uh, and then, and was initially, and this is kind of how what the play is about. But you know, the first half of the play, he's he's younger and he's almost this heroic figure. He's very much about the middle class and the working class and people. Uh, from the city uh being able to get in their cars and to be able to drive out to long island to the beaches and the parks that he's going to create and make accessible to them because at that point you know this is the the 1930s um 30s 30s or 20s um i can't remember exactly but but this is uh you know he's basically breaking breaking the stranglehold that the wealthy families of new york have on these areas because these are enormous stretches of land owned by you know, the Carnegie's and the Rockefellers and yeah. and people like that. And um, he, uh, I, I don't think, I don't, I don't know if I have the right right names there, but but they, you know, these very wealthy families. And um, he he sort of busts through them and opens it up. But then in the second part of his part part of the play, which is the later years, he's also kind of the villain of 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 the of the story because he is the guy who's trying to who has built. Uh, highways around New York and now wants to build a highway straight cutting through uh, Greenwich Village uh, and Jane Jacobs and um, local, you know, locals in Greenwich Village uh, basically fight him and stop him. Uh, and it's kind of the beginning of the preservationist movement in this country, but also 
Um, you know, it's the reason, I mean, you'll see one of the things they say, um, it's, this is not actually from the play, but this is kind of a thing that's that's always said about Robert Moses and his failure to develop the village, is that if you look at the New York skyline, you'll see Midtown and these huge, you know, you'll see the skyscrapers of Midtown, you'll see, you know, the Empire State Building and all that. And then you'll see the skyscrapers of downtown of Wall Street and all that, you know, mm-hmm. what was once the World Trade Center and now, you know, Mon- yeah. Liberty Tower and all that. And then in the middle, <laughs> it's just it's a it's flat, well, not flat, but it's it's short. There aren't any huge skyscrapers in the middle. And that's the village. And that's basically because they prevented uh, they prevented Robert Moses from kind of turning that into a basically a, a through way for traffic um and uh and so he was an enormously influential figure but that play also kind of demonstrates his genius i think because in the first half of the play he's a hero second half of the play he's a villain but he's kind Mm. of a snarling hero in the first half and a snarling villain in the second half oh interesting and he gives this incredibly physical performance you know where he's just like dancing around I mean, the the much of the stage is kind of this huge map of new york and he's just kind of dancing around and the way he moves in these very, you know, kind of hard lines is, I think, meant to indicate sort of almost to embody the uh, the highways and the roads that uh, Robert Moses wants to kind of boldly cut through New York. Um, and I think that that's, you know, he finds whatever it is, whatever it is, that he's doing, whether it's a good person or a bad person or a complicated person or a historical figure or, you know, or, you know, a supervillain or M, he finds, he finds what it is that gives that person that power. And then he turns it into something that can be used for, you know, for good or for ill, or, you know, you just don't, you just never know where it's going to go. Even M, even when he plays M, especially yeah. in the first one, was it mm-hmm. Skyfall? That was the first one that he was, he did. Um Yes. You don't know where he's going. I mean, he doesn't become M until the end of the movie because after Judy yep. Dench is killed, right? Mm-hmm. And at first, he has this almost confrontational relationship, right? Yeah. There's like he's not. He seems like he could potentially be one of the villains of the film, and by the end of the movie, he's M. Um, mm-hmm. And I love that. You know, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not I'm not the world's biggest Skyfall fan, but that is one of the great things about Skyfall. I mean, he's he's the great M. <laughs> like, I mean, I want them to make more James Bond movies with whoever they cast next, but I kind of want them to keep <laughs> Ray Fines. Yeah, I love that you brought up the power because when I was talking to my friends earlier this week about Ray Fines, uh, I heard from one in particular, Walter Cha, that heard that he exudes power on every set he he's on. Like you just see him and you can feel it or you yeah. know. Like this is someone who's been doing this so long and he commands a certain level of respect. Yeah. And that there is a level of power. And also, I'm glad you brought up the physicality because Mm -hmm. watching these, I think, in quick succession, you see the way that he does adapt physically for each role, not just costume, but the way he moves. Like the piece that you sent me, your interview with him, uh, where you talked about the invisible woman, Mm -hmm. you kind of lead in by asking about the physicality of that performance. And I know we'll get into it later. Um, and the way he plays him. But I was also watching the GQ interview where he was kind of sizing up his roles. Uh, it's on YouTube. And he was talking about like when he spoke with Joe Rowling for um, 
Harry Potter and uh, talking about Voldemort being like a snake. And he kind of starts doing this thing with his hand while he's talking and um, the way that he sort of um, based his performance and his voice on a snake, but also just his movement. And then I just before I jumped on, I was rewatching a clip from A Bigger Splash, which I mm-hmm. love so much. Uh, his little turn in that movie where he's dancing to Emotional Rescue by the Rolling Stones and just how he just kind of rocks out like nobody is looking, mm-hmm. even though everybody is watching him. And uh, so he does seem to that might be his way in. I know there are certain actors that, you know, when they get the wardrobe, like De Niro is a big mm-hmm. wardrobe guy or you know, when they affect an accent or whatever it is. But I'm starting to wonder with Rafe if it is his physicality. Yeah, it it must be, uh, you know, and, and I, you know, yeah, I sent you that interview and we talked about it. it in that interview. I, can't, yeah. I can't remember if I told you this or if I wrote this in the interview, but he's also just an incredibly physical presence, like interviewing him. He's one of the there have only been, I think, like maybe I was thinking about this before beforehand. I think maybe I've done four interviews over the years where the person in question at one point just like stood up and started like <laughs> stomping around the room and gesticulating and moving yeah, around yeah. and stuff. Um, and the people that I was thinking, okay, Ray Fiennes did this. Ray Fiennes like wow. got up and started stomping around the new room and like slapping his leg, you know, for emphasis and slapping the table for emphasis and stuff. Was he very... reenacting something or just No, answering? he was just talking. Like like there was Whoa. one point where he started talking and he just got up and started going. And it was like, but wow. you know, I mean, for these people, an in- interview is probably a performance to a certain extent. Oh as yeah, well. it is. But he, yeah. he didn't come off come off as in any way insincere no. or studied or rehearsed. He came across just very naturally carried along by the power of yeah. what he was saying. I don't remember what it was he was saying, oh, but like um the other person, the other people that who've done that to me in my presence, the first to, to ever do it was Prince when I interviewed him oh, wow. many, many years ago. He got up at one point and just started like just, you know, That's waving incredible. his arms around. And it's funny because Prince was just like this tiny, tiny human. Yeah. Um, so uh, he was, um, you know, so it's like this tiny person just like running yes. around. It's just there's something very surreal, almost Lynchian about it, you know. Um, and then... Uh, and then um, the other person who did well, Park Park Chan Wook did it actually when I interviewed him for The Handmaiden. But I think he was just, I think he'd just been sitting in a oh yeah like maybe. a little deck chair all day long doing interviews. And at one point he just kind of and he had an an interpreter there and he just kind of got up and started pacing the room talking. And um, I couldn't tell if he was being transported by the power of his words or he just needed to stretch <laughs> his legs. Um, and there was somebody wow. else that I'm like blanking on, but no, but Ray Fiennes was the one who I think along with Prince as well, although with Prince, it did feel more like a performance. Ray Fiennes was just like, you know, just like, just felt like he just had to move around. He's not a particularly big person, but there's just like this incredible coiled energy in him. Um, and he seems like, you know, I mean, he has this intense glare. Mm-hmm. It's funny. We, you know, it's funny because we're talking about Colin Farrell. Like he's like physically the exact opposite of Colin Farrell. Like the face yeah. is like literally it's like Colin Farrell has this tiny little mouth that makes him look so innocent sometimes. Like look like, and the eyebrows. like a little, yes. girl, but little boy. And Ray Fiennes has like the widest mouth I've ever seen, <laughs> you know. And yeah, Colin Farrell has the really sharp like but yeah. upturned eyebrows that make him look like total innocent. Um, and Ray Fiennes has these eyes that just like. Stare holes, yeah, 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 
in you. And then Colin Farrell has like Little Widow's Peak. That Again, Colin Farrell is an intense actor and, and a great actor and has done wonderful parts. But his physical features actually con- conspire to make him look like this innocent. Um, and, you know, just kind of this like very sort of <laughs> like everything registers on his face. Um, and Ray Fiennes, you never really know what he's thinking. Mm-hmm. But he's, you know, but but he's got like this the hawk like head, and he's like losing his hair, and it's just like you know he's kind of like got the beak going, and it's just <laughs> something like you. I mean, he's an incredibly devastatingly handsome individual, yeah, yeah, in but... a completely different way than Confer. Just like the exact opposite, like physically, literally, if you went to a computer and said, "Give me the exact opposite of this face," and you gave gave it Confer's face, it would probably give you Ray Fiennes' face. That is so funny. Oh, my gosh. Well, one of the other people I was talking to this week about Ray Fiennes and what he, what he does and just their thoughts on him is your friend and my friend Sean Burns. And Sean said that he thought that Rafe got more interesting when he started to lose the hair and started to get less focused or maybe less cast as often as mm-hmm. the romantic lead or the sudsy, you know, hero, the sweeping David Lean epic mm-hmm. kind of era, um, when he started to play really weird parts mm-hmm. and other people were diving into the discussion, like Blake Howard is like, yeah, and he's so funny and he's so like, he's good when he's funny. He's good when he's weird. And I think he does kind of enjoy playing far from his uh, appearance a little bit. You do see that sometimes with really good looking actors like mm-hmm. Aaron Eckhart was always trying to like lose himself in these weird roles or just play like a total asshole all the time. And uh, when Jude Law was in Road to Perdition or right. uh, Dom Hen- Hemingway or when he tried to do the opposite of what he kind of came up in with uh, Talented Mr. Ripley. And you can kind of see that Ray Fiennes is really enjoying himself in these sort of weirdo roles in the last uh, decade and a half, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And he was, I mean, and I mean, look, look at it. He, the, 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 his breakout part was in Schindler's List playing, you know, That's a, true. a, a vile yeah. Nazi. So going against it. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, interestingly, that same year, nine, 93, um, he was also in uh, Peter Greenaway's The Baby of Macan. Which I haven't uh, which, seen. I heard it's pretty controversial. Yeah, It's hugely controversial to the point where it didn't get released in this country until wow. 1997. Yeah. I actually, I had seen it um, years ago, uh, but I actually rewatched it last night because the Metrograph Theater here was showing it. Oh, wow. Um, and it is, it is a gnarly movie. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I love it, but it is, I mean, it is just incredibly brutal and and just... I mean, uh, uh, you know, scarring and traumatizing. It's not realistic. It's a Peter Greenaway movie, so yeah, yeah. it's not. You don't get kind of emotionally involved in the characters, but what it shows you is so terrifying and horrible that mm-hmm. you know you get, yeah, you know, I mean, you get sucked into it regardless. Um, and and re- sucked into it and then completely repulsed by it. But he <laughs> plays, you know, he plays this weird kind of not a love interest, but he and you know, Julia Ormond is in it. Um. And he and Julia yeah. Ormond, she's great. By the way, uh, <laughs> you, you you guys always introduce me as a writer director who's worked who's, who's made a film called The Barber of Siberia. Blake does this too. I did not. I, I was an assistant director on The Barber of Siberia. It's a it's a big Russian movie that was made oh, okay. in the '90s, starring Julia Ormond and Richard Harris. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's on my credits because I was like you know an assistant director on it. But I worked on that movie for a year. But there was actually 
while we were working on that movie that I saw The Baby of Macan because it didn't open in the U.S. Um, until some years later. This was 97. We were shooting in Prague. And and I went and saw Baby of Macan. Now, you haven't seen it, so I'm not going to spoil it for you. But okay. horrible, horrible, horrible things happened to Julia Ormond in that movie. Oh, no. She's, like, naked and, like, covered in blood for much of it. It's, it's I mean, it's just, you know, it's a... It's Peter Greenaway, yeah. One day, maybe we can do Peter Greenaway. <laughs> but, um, but it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a, and it kind of like stopped his career dead. I mean, he made more movies after that, and some of them actually came out here and were successful, like The Pillow Book. But yeah. Up until that point, he was kind of an art house darling, and then he made The Baby of Macon, and like nobody talked about him for <laughs> I don't a few know years. Who that um, guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of like Andrew Dominic with Blonde, I guess. Um, but um, he, uh, but, so anyway, but I had seen, I went and saw Baby of Macan, you know, that night at some art house in Prague. And, and the next day I showed up on set and, you know, I was standing next to Julia Armand right before one of, one of, we did a take. And I was like, hey, Julia, I saw the Baby of Macan last night. And then I was like, oh, shit, what did I just tell her that? She's like, like the cameras are about to roll. And I'm like, yeah, I'm basically saying, yeah, I saw you naked and bloody last night, you know, um, <laughs> and uh and she, you know, that didn't seem to affect her phase her too much. But I was like, I immediately regretted being like, hey, because um, that was a movie that I think that was made before she was a big star. Yeah. And, and I think she had kind of, you know, tried to forget it um, yeah. because it was such a disaster. Sure. Um, but uh, anyway, getting back to that, he does this part that year, which is like the exact opposite of, you know, Amon Goth in Schindler's List. It's he's not quite a romantically because he doesn't ever smile and it's, it's a Peter Greenaway movie. So there's nothing romantic about it, but he is kind of this like beautiful, mm -hmm. um, you know, refined aristocratic figure. And of course he's very naked in it too. And he meets a terrible and terrible yeah. bloody end in the film as well. Okay. So, um, so, you know, you see the physicality in both those movies, you see the physicality, both those movies that kind of put him on the map, you see the physicality, but you also see the range, his ability to do these two very different parts. One just like incredibly menacing and the other kind of this weird, fragile, romantic figure. And in both cases, you really don't know what's going on in his head, but that's kind of the, the power of his performance. Yeah, and early on too, thinking of like um, Wuthering Heights and Quiz Show, because I think I saw right. those two around the same time. You know, it was a couple, I can't remember if it was one year after Schindler's List that Quiz Show came out. Yeah. I think that was a '94 uh -huh. film. Yeah, so I saw those kind of within the same little span because my parents actually took us to the theater to see Schindler's List, even though I was in middle school because I thought you know it's very important. Sure. And um, so it's just that's the same actor. I remember having right. that kind of realization even then. So yeah, yeah, he's so actor. meek. He's so meek mm -hmm. in Quiz Show. It's it's weird. That's one uh, that I have not rewatched in a long time, and I'm curious what I would think of it then now because back then I was not a big fan, and it was a widely acclaimed movie. Um, so I saw it kind of after everybody said, "Oh, it's like the best film of the year," and I went and saw it. And I was, ah, I'm not sure I like this. I'm not sure I like this Ray Fiennes character. You know? um, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, but then you know, years later, he's one of my favorite actors. Yeah. Oh, I actually revisited it a year ago for a game show movies episode that I did, and mm. uh, for me, like the heartbreaking portrayal at the center of it. Although Ray Fiennes is really good in it, but is John Turturro. Who's another yeah, one of my he was favorites. Great. Yeah. He was great in that part. 
Yeah, well, kicking things off for the movies that we're here to discuss, we have two exceptional romantic sweeping period epics from 1999. The first from Hungarian filmmaker Istvan Szabo is a three-hour multi-generational saga spanning six decades in the lives of the members of a Jewish family throughout the first half of the 20th century. In Sunshine, Ray Fiennes plays every major male heir, or three of them, and he acts opposite a murderer's row of talent, including Rosemary Harris and her daughter, Jennifer Ailey, or Jennifer L., as well as Rachel Bice, Deborah Kara Unger, Molly Parker, James Frain, Mark Strong, and more. And the second film from 1999 is a stunning adaptation of the titular novel from Graham Greene, the end of the affair acting opposite Julianne Moore and Stephen Ray. Ray Fiennes plays a writer named Morris or Maurice Bendrix in writer director Neil Jordan's film, who is trying to figure out why the unhappily married woman he was in a passionate affair with abruptly ended their relationship during world war II. Obviously both stunningly made films are great ones. It had been a long time since I had seen either. So this was a good um, opportunity to revisit them, but I'll let you lead us in any way you would like on these two from 99. They really are great movies, aren't they? Yeah. I, I, I had seen them when they came out. Now, yep. Neil Jordan and Istvan Sabo are, are two of my favorite filmmakers. Istvan Sabo in particular, because when I was a kid, um, you know, I was really taken with his, um, with this trilogy of films he made uh, in the 80s, um, Colonel Redl, uh, Mephisto, and Hanusen, all with Klaus Maria Brandauer. Um, and uh, Mephisto, I believe, uh, won a Best Foreign Film Oscar. Yes. Uh, and I, I believe all three were nominated for Best Foreign Film as well. Um, and in fact, I mean, Colonel, Colonel Redl is the one I would say is the masterpiece, but they're all phenomenal films. And I became so obsessed with Istan Sabo that I dug up all his older films and his other films that he'd made in Hungary. Um, and, uh, you know, he'd become one of my favorite directors. By that point, he had, you know, he had started making movies. I mean, he had, you know, these films were financed by, uh, you know, I mean, these films were set in Germany and, and you know, Austria. And um, he uh, kind of, um, you know, he was making sort of more mainstreamy Western English language films like Meeting Venus and stuff. Um, and he was still a very interesting filmmaker, but with Sunshine, it's like he he made a film that I think in some ways might have worked better for people if it was, you know, if it was a foreign language film. Because he's, he's, uh, he's yes, cast I can see that. Yeah. English speaking actors doing English dialogue, you know. With their accents, yeah. With their accents, uh, even though, you know... They're, Some of they're, them, they're, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, and the accents yeah. are kind of all over. None of that. I mean, I love the film. Yeah. Um, but but I think that, you know, I, I remember at the time a lot of people were kind of put off by that movie. I think because of that. Um, mm. Because it's like kind of... I mean, it's like a sort of old school Euro-pudding epic production made at a time when those types of films were increasingly being seen as kind of old-fashioned and almost quaint. Um, but, you know, I, I love sunshine. Um, and you know, it's, um, it's weird because it starts off and it's, I also wonder if at some point sunshine was supposed to be a longer movie because it kind of breezes through the, the early yes. scenes. There's like all these like little mm -hmm. snippets of scenes where you're like, 
that feels like it was probably like a full scene written through that they enacted through that they shot. And then at some point he's like, ah, we got to get this down to three hours. And here's like 10 seconds of it, you know? Yeah. Um, And there's that voiceover from Ray Fiennes as the the character that he is at the end of the movie, Mm -hmm. um, kind of narrating the story. But, um, you know, but as, but I think what the thing that the film does that's, you know, one of the many interesting things about it is that it starts off in this almost old fashioned register. Um, yes. Voiceover and the kind of um, not not quite stateliness, but this sort of old world quaintness um, and very sort of simple storytelling that that goes with it. Um, and as the film proceeds, it gets like darker and darker and more horrifying yeah. and more complicated, which of course is also what happens to the 20th century. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, finds is great in the film because he is at once an actor who you could describe as very old fashioned and also very modern. You know, he can do mm-hmm. kind of like, you can totally imagine Ray finds being, you know, a great actor in the 1940s. You know, yes. For fifty. Yeah. Um, and uh, and you could also totally imagine Ray Fiennes being a great actor in like, you know, like nineteen twenties. You know, silence. I mean, he could totally do German expressionism. Mm-hmm. He would be perfect for it. You know, um, <laughs> with the face, yeah, with the face and kind of the, that intensity. I mean, he could be a silent actor. You know, yeah. Um, and then uh, so he's perfect for those early parts, and then. But he's also an incredibly modern actor. I mean, he's he's a you know, incredibly physical, um, in, in many ways postmodern because you never quite know what he's thinking, you know. Um, and there is uh and so like he's that ability to sort of switch gears, I think serves him really well in the film. Um and also because in some ways, you know, and this is I think a thing that Istvan Sabo's films have always done, or many of them. I mean, the, the early trilogy, the German trilogy that he did, uh, or, you know, it, it kind of, um, all those films are about this phenomenon, which is a person who pretends to be something uh, and then basically becomes the thing that they're pretending to be, right? Yes. You know, I mean, that's Mephisto is, you know, he's playing, he's playing Mephisto and then he kind of becomes this demonic, character um he uh you know colonel reddle is is about a guy who you know kind of is hiding his identity um in his um in his kind of quest to uh you know quest to become you know uh, become rise and rise in the officer ranks um and uh and he becomes you know he's 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 a homosexual and he becomes kind of the the, the most um you know the, the, the you know the, the the most strident member of the police force you know and, and so these all these films kind of turn on the idea of a character uh who adopts an identity knowing that they are at heart somebody different and then they become that person uh whose identity whose identity they adopted essentially and sunshine is kind of about that same phenomenon right it's about you know these these characters who um who suppress their identity who suppress their jewish identity 
um, and uh, and then become, you know, you know, become even more nationalistic than than other people. Um, and yeah. and then by the time it comes, you know, but and then the the world changes around them, and they don't know how to change with it. They've adopted this persona. Um, and it's really, uh, you know, it's incredibly sad in that way. Um, but also it's, you know, he's telling the story of, you know, Hungary under, uh, you know, in the Austro-Hungarian empire and then under the Nazis, uh, and then, uh, under the communists. So it's, you know, the, the idea of like suppressing your identity to kind of become the thing that you're expected to become is, the story of so many people um, mm-hmm. in the 20th century. And that's, I think, what makes Sunshine so powerful even today. Yeah, when I was looking up the film and watching um, an interview with Ray Fiennes, I can't remember the exact word he used, but he was quoting the filmmaker as telling him that the reason it appealed to him or what the film was truly about was, it, I'm going to say curse, that wasn't the word he was using. It might have been the plague of trying to please everyone or seeking approval or the need to, you know, have whatever you're doing be accepted by everyone, which is kind of, it goes through, I mean, there is of course the overarching theme of um, their Hungarian Jews and what happens to them um, during the war and them, um, you know, trying to deny that and they change their last name and then also how that affects you know the older relatives and the people who don't understand why they would even do that Mm -hmm. um but also it plays out in other parts of the film like in the first big story we have him fall in love with his first cousin and you know you're not supposed to be together and so he gives in to his parents wishes not to do that because he wants to be accepted and then he can't deny it And other things like, you know, um, having an affair with a married woman in the third storyline, you know, he wants this thing. And it's just about like, um, there's the public persona or what you're trying to deny yourself and what you really are exactly what you were pointing out. Yeah, it kind of goes throughout the whole film. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and and obviously the, the tragedy of a lot of these countries is that, um, or a lot of these societies is that you know you existed in a in a in a in a world where you had to get acceptance like you had to do what was expected of you like you couldn't you know there was no i mean under the nazis or for that matter under the communists there was no um no i'm I'm not gonna do that (laughs) there there was no you know i'll I'll march to the tune of my own drummer i'm not yeah yeah yeah. like that's just not a thing that's i mean that's you know, authoritarianism and or totalitarianism. I mean, that's kind of, um, you know, yeah. that's sort Life of how death. it works. Yes. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, which plays out uh, in the middle story. Yes. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. And it's fun. It's, you know, Sunshine at the time that it came. I can't remember if it was a hit or not. I know it was like nominated for a, like a couple of Golden Globes um, and it got some very good reviews and then some mixed reviews and and um and i don't i don't remember if it did well but i remember a lot of people talking about it and it's one of those movies that's kind of vanished over the years like it really has i had to yeah. find it on hoopla which was is, it on hoopla it was yeah for anyone listening at least when i was prepping for this i found it if your library or your library you know use mm-hmm. 
your library card, check it out, see if your uh, library uh, uses Hoopla because it was there, which was good. Yeah, yeah. I actually uh, bought a DVD of it. Um, oh, I wow. had, well, I, you know, I'd, I'd seen it. Obviously, I'd seen it when it came out. And I saw it again not long after it it came out. Not in theaters, but you know, like I think on VHS or something. Or back then, like that. by that point, it would have been DVD. Um, but uh, I, um, you know, I was going to look for it. And of course, I have, you know, I, I, there are torrent sites that I have access yeah. to that I could get it. Obviously, and I was like, you know what? I want this on DVD because who the hell knows what's yeah, going to happen to it. Yes. You know, it's not a film that seems to be uh, much discussed. Was it a Weinstein release? I can't remember. Was it like a Miramax thing? Um, I don't think so, but I, I could be it wrong. Might not. It might have been like Sony Pictures. I, I mean, I have the DVD here. I could check. But uh, it's but, you know, it's like one of those things. I'm like, ah, I feel like I feel like nobody's going to release this again. No. I, I should I should hang on to this DVD. And it was like not cheap. But I was like, you know what? I love I mean, but, he, you know, Isfah yeah. Sabo is actually a director I really, really love. And I was like, I should have this. I, sh- I should have it. Um, But I'm very glad I did because, you know, I, I do feel like it's a film I will uh, return to now that I, now that it's now that it's mine. <laughs> there you go. I love that. And then End of the Affair. I remember when that came out. Well, I saw both of these films when they were brand new, but end of the affair i mean that michael nyman score is just stunning oh my god and the cinematography you know you have all the regal neil jordan um old-fashioned production specs i mean it's a stunner i remember that was one of my favorite films the year it came out for sure yeah you know it's it's so funny because it's like it's 1999 which is like this great great year for movies yeah um and again 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 one of these years where you're like oh god like really american beauty (laughs) (laughs) yeah um I mean, all the movies that like got the awards that year were just, I mean, not, not the movies that should have won, um, <laughs> you know, except for The Insider, obviously, the, the one Oscar nominee from that year that I would keep. Um, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, like there's so many great films that year. And then I'm like, oh, wait, End of the Affair might actually be better than most of these films, like even some of the iconic sort of 1999 movies and Sunshine, too. Yeah. End of the Affair. I, I adore that film. Yeah. And, that did not do well. I remember when it came out and I was no. shocked because mm-hmm. I mean, Neil Jordan is a major filmmaker um, yeah. and I was a, I was a big fan of his work. I think I don't remember what film he'd made right before this, but I know that he had done, um, he had done the butcher boy. I remember that. And he had done um, butcher boy was acclaimed. Uh, and then he did this. Oh God. Um, what was it called? The one with Robert Downey Jr. and Annette Benning, I think. Um, was it In the, Dreams? In Dreams, yes. Yeah. Was it Annette Benning? And he also that? did uh, Michael Collins. Right, Michael Collins, yeah. too. Michael Collins, I think, was a little before. Um, that was I mean, in, was, yeah, let's see. Oh, yeah, it, yeah, it was. Boy, he had a decade there. Crying Game, <laughs> Interview with a Vampire, Michael right. Collins, Butcher Boy, In Dreams. Oh, wow. In Dreams and End of the Affair both came out in 99. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I don't know, actually, I mean, I've interviewed Neil Jordan a couple of times, but I've never got, had a chance to ask him about these these movies. Um, but, you know, Crying Game obviously, like, just put him on the map. Like, it, it was a huge, huge hit, um, which I think allowed him to then do uh, Michael Collins. And, uh, well, he did interview uh, with, a vamp- with a vampire, um, which was sort of seen as a bit of a bust. I mean, I think it did okay because it had 
stars, but was not critically acclaimed. I think people had been wanting to make that movie for a long time, and it was highly anticipated. I think its reputation is a lot better now, but it was kind of a big movie, and I think at the time it was like, oh, I don't know, you know, yeah. Tom Cruise is. I remember Anne Rice gonna, was trashing uh, yeah. the Tom Cruise casting back then, and yeah. But but then getting, she changed changed yep. her mind. She at I first know. she was like, this is terrible, and then later she was like, this is great. And you never know which one she really meant, you yes. know, because um, <laughs> obviously she was going to get some money if it became a huge yeah. hit. And, you know, they made more sequels to it. Um, but, um, you know, people think more fondly of that film now, too. I, I, I like it more now. I think Tom Cruise, you know, he at the time he seemed and we're getting off track here, but I, but I, I did want to note this at the time Tom Cruise seemed wrong to me in many ways because because as Lestat he was sort of charmless um and 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 I remember when I read the book Lestat was just like incredibly charming um I watched it again a few years ago I watched it again a couple of times over the years I like him a lot more now like he's I mean that sort of menacing quality of his works better now mm-hmm. than it did back then but because back then he was tom cruise you know he was like he yeah. expected like the full the full cruise experience and it was just like oh he's doing something totally different here and um mm-hmm. but uh but it is interesting and it speaks maybe to the fact that like somebody like ray fines i initially was was iffy on and then over the years have really warmed to mm-hmm. is that you know the way you perceive things the way you perceive performances and things like that can change so much over the years because you've pulled it out of the context of the time in which it was presented. And suddenly, 20 years later, in the context of 20 years later, looking back on it, you're like, this is great. I I wish he would do more parts like this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, we're, we're talking about Neil Jordan. But so it seemed like there was this time when, like, post-Crying Game, you never quite knew if Neil Jordan, like, was back or not. Because he did Michael yeah. Collins, which was also not actually no. that well-liked. And I don't like that movie very much, even though I love it. I don't every... remember it being good. Yeah. It's not, but no. like every single person involved in it is a genius. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I love Liam Neeson. Yeah. Uh, you know, Aiden Quinn, Julia oh, Roberts. I love, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, it's like and Neil Jordan. I love the story of Michael Gollum. Aiden Quinn great. never gets enough praise. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know. Yeah. Um, Aiden Quinn and Liam Neeson. Yes. They've made a number of movies together, including one not too long ago. Um, and uh, and there is this kind of weird little uh, weird bromance between them over the years that I find like it's their relationship. It's like their relationship carries over from movie to movie. So I just kind of imagine them as the same <laughs> two guys. Um, but uh, but anyway, end of the affair. And when end of the affair came out, especially since it came on the heels of In Dreams, which was horrible. Um, mm-hmm. It felt like such a, a triumph. I was like, yes, this is it. This is the Neil Jordan movie I've been waiting for. Yes. Um, and it just did nothing. And I was like, come on, man. Like, at least like somebody buy the soundtrack. <laughs> music is great. At least, oh, you my know? God. That music is just amazing. Yeah. I remembered the music. Like, as soon as it started, uh, the film started to play. I'm like, oh, I remember playing the score again and again back yeah. when it, it came out. But, yeah, um, this is kind of... a I just this week I was talking to some friends about Mona Lisa, which is mm-hmm. another Neil Jordan sure. that I love. And he kind of does these like tragic romances or these misguided affection movies just mm-hmm. wonderfully well. And this, I mean, it's 
it's already been made into a film. I think it was 1955. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's a really famous novel. But, you know, if you watch the old one, which I haven't seen in quite some time, and then you watch this one, it, this is the one for me. It's, yeah. yeah, it's just mesmerizing. Julianne Moore was my favorite actress of this era, for sure. For a number of years, she was just my favorite. It was one of those, like, now we say Amy Adams, like, why aren't you getting an Oscar already? You right. know, that was Julianne Moore for the longest time. And, you know, this was such a great turn because she's the American in the mix who has to kind of hold her own with these yeah. people doing killer accents. And she's so good. And she's also playing a very tricky role because, yeah. you know, we're seeing it um, as he is narrating the events from present day and we go back in time to their relationship and it kind of jumps around Mm -hmm. we're seeing her through his eyes and then um later when we know more about their romance and what really happened then we suddenly get a ticket to the clue bus and know what uh, (laughs) she was going through and finds you know he has that kind of like this feels very much of a piece with some of his English patient style roles mm-hmm. for the first part when they're in the relationship. But then there's that menace or that, you know, thing underneath where you're not quite sure if you like or trust this guy until you know what's going on. And I think he does that well. He kind of has to go back and forth between the two. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's that, it's that, um, you know, I mean, I've, I've talked about it as range, um, yeah. but it's like, it's like a, you know, it's not so much. I mean, he does have range. He can do all sorts of oh, different yeah. parts. But 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 there is also kind of a subtle range that he has. I mean, and you see it. You see it in Sunshine, um, mm-hmm. and you see it in uh, in the end of the affair. Where, I mean, he's he's obviously not he's not playing different characters in this one, but the film tells the same story from two perspectives. Yes, and and the characters change subtly in each one because it's you're you're seeing one character as you said you're seeing. First, you're seeing her through his eyes, and then, mm-hmm. and then you start to see him through her eyes. Yeah. Um, and and you know, in order for that to work, these very subtle changes have to happen in the way we see him and we perceive him. Because at first, he's you know, kind of this like you know, this noirish figure, very yes, sort of in the hurt rain. and angry. Yeah. And then she, you know, is she a femme fatale? Is she just yeah? She just she was cheating on her husband mm-hmm. with him, and now is she cheating on him with someone else? And she's like, oh no, is yes. she fucking the priest? You know what's yes, going on? Exactly. You know, um, you're like, what's you're with like that? And, and and I mean, this is very Graham Greene. Uh, I, I love the novel. It's yeah. been years since I read it. I was obsessed with Graham Greene as a kid, so uh, and it is one of his best novels. But like. It's like his his conception of her changes in these ways, but each time it changes a little more. And by the end, not by the end, but like by about midway through sort of his emotional journey, his vision of her has been twisted so much that like with each new thing he discovers, he almost imagines her as being even more depraved. Yeah. Even more just horrible um and later you realize like she was you know like you know that it was a completely not what he thought it was you know i mean and it was in fact it was it was the exact opposite she was she had become the most faithful person and the most 
you know, faithful, religious, moral, upstanding person in the world because she had basically, when she thought that he had been killed in yeah, a bombing, yeah. right as they were like having really hot naked sex, yes. um, she basically prayed to God that spare him. Yeah. That, that 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 God spare him. And if he spared him, that she would be utterly devoted to God forever. Mm-hmm. And give him this. up. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and, and give him up. And and he doesn't know this, of course. Um, and uh and so he thinks that, you know, she's rejected him and she's seeing all these people and she, you know, it's just it just it's like his his none of this is actually said outright, but as you watch the film, you just sort of imagine him just thinking even darker and darker and more hateful thoughts. And and then you realize what's happened and it's like a complete turnaround. Yeah. Um, but in order for this to work, we have to think of him as on some level, we have to be able to relate to him, but we also have to think of him as this kind of figure who, whose soul is being corroded basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it, it has to turn around and we have to be able to see him through her eyes as both yes. this like incredibly tender and lo- you know loving figure that she's she adores. But then later he becomes even crueler in her eyes because of the way he's rejecting her and he's accusing her of all these things. Mm-hmm. And yet throughout, you know, we're in he's still narrating the story. So yeah, you know, we can't completely lose him. I don't know. I just think it's, it's such a so great, great complicated. Film. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of the play you were just talking about and what mm-hmm. he had to do with that, where you said he was um, you know, a hero and then a villain, right. but being very ambitious, or I can't remember the word that you were using, aggressive uh yeah. hero, aggressive villain, and um just kind of having to play both parts of that or both sides. I mean, he's playing a lot of different things going yeah. on on the same in the same like different notes at the same time is what he's yeah. doing in this film. And yeah, because it is Graham Greene. Um, I was joking with some friends. You could basically just call this movie sexy Catholic guilt. Because, yeah. Well, yeah that <laughs> you is can call a number like, of his films that, but yes, yes yeah, this one the that most. Is, uh, Graham Greene for sure. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's an extraordinary film. Um, so beautiful. Yeah. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen it in a long time, highly recommend you check it out and listen to that soundtrack. Yes. Yeah, it's um. There is a, there's actually a new Neil Jordan film coming out, Marlowe, uh, with Liam Neeson. Um, Ooh, does this know, one have Aiden Quinn though? No. Does not have. Does it have Aiden? Quinn? No, it doesn't no, have Aiden, Aiden Quinn. But it does have um, it does have uh, is it Ian Hart um, who's in this one. He's in he's in that one as well. Liam Neeson is in it. Oh, it's, right. Neil Jordan has been reunited with Liam Neeson. Um, I have seen it. I'm not allowed to say what I think of okay. it yet, but I have. Seen, I can tell you off the record afterwards. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, next we get into Ray Fine's first two directorial efforts made two years apart, in which he also stars in 2011's John Logan uh, written adaptation of William Shakespeare's Coriolanus. Ray Fiennes leads a top-notch cast, including Jessica Chastain, Gerard Butler, Vanessa Redgrave, Brian Cox, James Nesbitt, and more, in a bold, ambitious work that places the play in a pseudo-Balkan contemporary setting reminiscent of the Yugoslavia Wars. And directed by Fiennes two years later, we have screenwriter Abby Morgan's adaptation of the Claire Tomlin book, 
The Invisible Woman, about the 13-year secret love affair between the Mary Charles Dickens, played by Fines, with the young actress Nellie Turnin, played by Felicity Jones, who was 18 when they met, co-starring his English patient co-star, Kristen Scott Thomas, along with Tom Hollander, Joanna Scanlon, and more. So what is your take on these two films and Fines' era here as director? Well, he's a very good director, I yeah. think, um, and a very good director of performances, which mm-hmm. should not uh, surprise anybody. I like uh, The Invisible Woman more than Coriolanus, but I do like Coriolanus a lot, and I think yeah. he's uh, he's incredible in it, as is Gerard Butler. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Coriolanus is a fascinating play. It's it's one of my favorite Shakespeare plays, um, and but it is also, in some ways, one of his least accessible plays because it's about, I mean, it's you know, it is one of those plays where you read it and you're like, wow, that was a very different time when he was writing it because it's kind of about, you know, it's about this, it's about this kind of heroic general um, who uh, who basically kind of has to bring himself down to the level of the people. Yeah, um, he's the and, most elitist, and, yes. Yeah, and he refuses to. And that's mm-hmm. kind of, I mean, the play does not see that as a bad thing that he refuses to do this. No. I think it's, you know, I think Fines kind of massages it a little yeah, bit, tweaks it a bit. Um, but uh, but you know, in in Shakespeare's play, it's seen as kind of this incredibly vulgar thing he has to do that he has to bring himself down to the level of the people and kind of you know sort of ask for their acceptance and and you know so so it's it's like Shakespeare's most anti democratic play. I think even I think T. S. Eliot said this t.s Eliot loved Coriolanus. <laughs> be surprised anybody who knows anything about about t.s Eliot. but um he uh you know but he considered Coriolanus and hamlet to be kind of the two masterpieces of shakespeare's oh wow shakespeare's career i don't know if i'd go that far but i do really love Coriolanus because it is such a weird weird play i had never I actually, read it this I, is you know, like I, the one that I I had not read. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not it's not a popular one. It kind yeah. of became a little more popular um after the movie. Um and I think he had done it on stage as well. He was, you know, he I mean Ray Fiennes should not surprise anybody, Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts trained yes, actor, yes. famous for his Hamlet, you know, he has done a lot of big, yeah. you know, he, he's done a lot of Shakespeare. Um and uh he always but, said this is the one he wanted to do. Um, if he directed, like it was an idea, he kind of, yeah. if I was ever going to do a Shakespeare, it would be Coriolanus, which I found very interesting. That yeah. is interesting. And I yeah. guess maybe that makes sense for someone like yep. Ray Fines, who has that sort of, you know, like we talked about this kind of power and intensity, which is kind of, per. I mean, I've, I haven't seen his Hamlet. His Hamlet is apparently incredible. Um but I kind of can't imagine him as Hamlet. <laughs> like I, I'm sure he was great, but I'm kind of like, yeah, Hamlet, really? I can see um, him more as Iago or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, or, or and obviously, he wouldn't. We wouldn't have him do Othello, but you could sort of kind of imagine yeah, yeah. that sort of like that might like the the, the his persona speaks more mm-hmm. to that type Being of character. Being more complicated, yes. Yeah, and and not the sort of conflicted, you know, mm-hmm. postmodern man Hamlet. But maybe I guess that speaks to his range, which we've been talking about. But um, 
And I remember back in the days when I still thought of myself as somebody who might try to direct movies, Coriolanus was one I always thought to myself, how would you adapt that today? This was obviously well before, you know, Ray Fiennes did it. But I always thought, like, how would you adapt Coriolanus to today in a way that would not today necessarily even like to set it in today, but how would you stage Coriolanus or direct Coriolanus in a way that made sense to today's audience? And I realized at one point, oh, you'd make him a superhero. Uh, um, and then I realized, oh, wait, that's The Incredibles. Like, that's what The Incredibles is about, right? The Incredibles is about superheroes who are kind of brought to the level of ordinary people and about mm -hmm. how that's a bad thing, right? Yes. Um, and, of course, you would not do that with anybody else in kind of the the modern dramatis personae of characters that we can have, right? You wouldn't do that with a general. You wouldn't do that with a president or a prime minister or anybody in a position of power. The idea that they should never, never, you know, stoop to the level of the common people in modern, you know, cultural product. That's just not a thing that you would not that you would suggest, um, except in superheroes. Superheroes, we understand, are superior human beings and they should not have to, you know, <laughs> worry about what we think of them, right? Um, and uh, and then, you know, but I think Ray Fiennes kind of figured it out because he kind of turns him into a superhero of sorts, right? I mean, he yep. is, that's what he is. Really, I mean, Coriolanus in some ways might be the first superhero story, right? Because he's this <laughs> incredible general, incredibly powerful general who can, like, defeat people. Um single-handedly you know yeah um, after and the that's Greek why, gods like this was the next right. superhero for sure yeah <laughs> right and, and and that way of sort of putting him up against Gerard Butler who mm -hmm. was also an incredible physical actor who by the way if you haven't done a Gerard Butler pod <laughs> I'm your guy um <laughs> I was but, I was wondering that when I first saw his name I'm like First of all, our friend Blake's voice in my head, Jerry Butler doing Shakespeare. You know, I was like, what? Yeah. But, you know, he's damn good in it. Yeah. He's yeah. great. And, and, yeah. and he does it in uh, an accent that is utterly indecipherable, which I love. Yes. I believe that is his At actual first you're accent. Like, um, is it Scottish there? And then he sounds more American. And you're like, I don't know what that is, but, yeah. you know, it works. It absolutely works. But the two of them are such physical actors, but not similar actors. I mean, no. Jerry Butler is, is a much kind of more sort of, I mean, almost sort of punky and yeah, kind of an ordinary. I mean, he has I mean, he's a Bruce Willisy type of actor. a much better actor, I think, than yeah. Bruce Willis. But he has that Bruce Willis quality of just like he's a guy you might run into at a bar, you know, um, he's your local fireman. Basically. He's your local fireman. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's yep. kind of I mean, that's always been his appeal. Mm -hmm. Or in in the films that, and he, I'm a big Gerard Butler fan, but like in the films <laughs> that, where he really works, he kind of works on that level, which is the exact opposite of Ray Fiennes. Um, so to bring the two of them against one another in physical combat um, is a stroke of genius, I think. And um, he, uh, and Fiennes is, I mean, here you really see this, the, 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 the coiled physical intensity of his just being mm -hmm. um obviously yeah. the performance requires you know a, a, yeah. a grandiosity and an intensive spittle flecked speeches and all that yeah and you almost needed him to do um the hurt locker before right. he did this i think yeah. a little bit almost 
Um, yeah. yeah, you can kind of see that when you reteamed with, uh, oh, we forgot about Strange Days. I know, Bigelow that's another again. one, another hard yeah. one to find that we could hard, do. Hard movie, yeah. 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 Um, but, you know, it, kind of the intensity. And he said when he was prepping this film, he rewatched um, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet right. just to try to find weird, modern, bold, uncompromising ways to bring Shakespeare to film because he didn't want to do, you know, kind of a blocky um, classical uh, version. And he said part of the reason that he was drawn to it is it because this does not get performed very much. Right. Yeah. And I think that sort of like we needed one, he thought. And <laughs> also, I just I do find it interesting that this was the the play that really did appeal to him. Uh, the Gerard Butler dynamic is really good because I watched the film twice because I had never seen it. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I watched it again today, I was noticing, I mean, there is a real homoerotic undercurrent between oh, yeah. these two guys. <laughs> oh, and I yeah. love that the way that uh, Butler is playing it, even just some of the lines that and the way he punches them, like when we're beard to beard, you know, mm -hmm. he will be mine or I will be his. And then later, you know, you got to have uh, Ray Fine's character have a beard then for mm -hmm. the next time they do meet. <laughs> and um, just some of those little things that I didn't pick up the first time around that I love so much. But yeah, uh, so good. And just the whole cast that he assembles. You've got, you know, Brian Cox is always great. But I was really excited to see James Nesbitt who I think is somebody we don't appreciate a lot. No. He's really good on the small screen. Um, I like his kind of his darker stuff he's done over in Ireland, but he also has done some comedy. Um, mm -hmm. And so this kind of had his sort of everyman. He's likable, but there's an element of, whoa, you know, um, to him that I thought he did very well. Of course, Vanessa Redgrave is great. Jessica Chastain doesn't get a lot to work with here. She's kind of a quieter presence, uh, but she's always good. And yeah, so I was really glad you um, chose this one so I could finally see it. It's uh, with Chastain, I will say the film reminds you of what an interesting face she has. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. um, she's, I think she's a phenomenal actor. I oh, really, yeah. really love Jessica Chastain. I, I know she kind of, you know. I think people think of her as a little old hat now that she's won the Oscar. But I'm like, yeah, look, yeah. Tree of Life. Everybody in the, who did the Tree of Life gets a lifetime pass. For me. <laughs> you are, you are in my path. Yeah, I don't care what yeah. you do, what, what happens to you. Sean Penn, Godspeed. You, you were in Tree of Life. <laughs> we're good. Um, but uh, but um, what was I going to say? Um, yeah, the, the thing you pointed out. Um, you know the, the the fact that this hadn't been done. So obviously it's it's an updating of the story because it's you know set in the semi present day the 90s yeah. war torn Yugoslavia but mm -hmm. you know not really um and obviously you know there're guns and machine guns there're guys in fatigues there's you yes know, tv reports i mean it has all those little and some of these are awkwardly done i think um mm -hmm. which is why it's not a yeah, it reminded me a little in that respect of uh, Hamlet. Was it Michael? Uh, Michael Almereda's Hamlet, yeah. which is which is not a Hamlet I love. No, it's I, interesting. I, yeah, it's interesting. I should watch it again because because I you know I, I've warmed to uh, Ethan Hawke much more since then, and I think I would I like it. You know, again, one of these movies that um, you know you see it the first time, you see it in theaters, you're like, eh, I don't know what the hell is this, you know, mm. like isn't there something else we could be watching? And then like years later, you're like, oh yeah, yeah. 
you know, he does to be or not to be in a video store, you know. Um, yeah, but, uh, El Mierda also did Cymbeline, which came out uh, right, a few right, years right. after Cor- yeah. Yeah, Coriolanus. The yeah. thing that, the, but the thing that I think Fines does with Coriolanus that I think is kind of brilliant, and I don't know if this was intentional, but yes, he does the updating. But because the film, because this has never been put to film, it has been staged, but it's still not one of the better known Shakespeare plays. I mean, you know, they Christopher Walken did it in Shakespeare in the Park in the 80s or 90s or whenever it was. You know, it's like there have been some great Coriolanuses, but it's not part of the canon in that mm-hmm. way. Um, so there's, and it's, and it's, you know, obviously hasn't really been adapted that much for film. So we don't have any real expectations for it. And one of the things that kind of kills Shakespeare, especially, well, especially, you know, commonly produced Shakespeare, like a Macbeth or a Hamlet or King Lear or an Othello, is that we know the soliloquies and we have some memory of other people and how they've done them, right? I was just talking about this. Actually, I went to see Straight Line Crazy with a friend of mine who's an actor and who loves to talk about Shakespeare and and was actually telling me about Ray Fiennes' Hamlet and stuff. Um, but and he actually started talking about different Hamlets that people had done. Because I asked him, I said, oh, what's your favorite Hamlet? Um, and the thing is, each one of those people has to do, to be or not to be, yeah. <laughs> in their own way, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's like you can't, you can never do it the way this other guy did it. You kind of have to do it like, oh, how's he going to do to be or not to be? You know, and that's, that's kind of like the central, like the central tension in any production of Hamlet isn't, what's going to happen in the play it's like how are they going to do this soliloquy how are they going to what are they going to do new with this what are they going to yeah. you know it's like and the beauty of Coriolanus is one nobody really knows the soliloquies in Coriolanus I mean Mm-mm. obviously some you know, of the lines you're well, like oh yeah I remember that yeah, yeah. is but that that's about it? you know I think that was the title of a book once you know yeah, like things yeah. like that but yeah there aren't any like really familiar soliloquies in it no. and also there are no real I mean again unless you're like a total Shakespeare nerd you don't have any memory of anyone doing these so he can just go all out just like I said the spittle flecked screaming soliloquy which is you would never do that with Hamlet these days because it's like somebody fucking did that already don't embarrass yourself don't try to do it you're not you're not gonna you have to come up with the new newfangled way of doing Mm -hmm. it same with Macbeth right you know you know um same with Julius Caesar, you know, you know, you know, yeah. the dogs of war. everybody has to do that differently now. But Coriolanus, you can go right down. <laughs> you can go with, you know, straight down the lane with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the, the, the road is open. There are no Olivier's standing in your way. There are no, oh, this is how Dustin Hoffman did it in 1978. You know, there's, there's none of that shit. You can just do straight yeah. up screaming so and he does them he does them because he's so good at that yeah i'm glad you brought that up because recently my friend donald logue was making mm. me watch uh the king lear the russian one from, oh yeah I that's say, great the, yeah from like 1970 or 71 yeah, he's like it's on youtube the, the you gotta watch it film, yeah. and um you know he's like it's the stuff because you know it's not nobody's in tights or they're not you know it's dark and it's you know really weird and like promise you're gonna watch so i watched it and when i was watching it and then thinking of what kenneth brana did in hamlet it was kind of like you know i bet he took more from that than he did yeah. from some of the Olivier's and stuff. Right. And so you can kind of see, 
maybe Ray finds digging that same King Lear, basically, or just this sort of a style of, yeah, I don't have to go back to the same thing that everybody that Kenneth Branagh's and who's probably played it a million times on stage or whatever, but um, you know, we're not going to know that the movie going public. So I like what you were saying with that. Um, But stylistically, he probably was pulling from these real revolutionary uh, adaptations. Yeah. 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 And then, um, yeah. An invisible woman. um, That's the one that I think is actually as a director, that's, I agree. Um, It kind of goes to, I didn't realize, I think his mom had been a novelist and a painter Mm -hmm. and um, he had done some painting before he became an actor and the movie, I mean, some of the shots, Rob Hardy, I think was the cinematographer Mm -hmm. and they're just knockout. They look like Renoir paintings. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I was working for One Perfect Shot. Um, oh, okay. Shortly after the film, that came was out. you, huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but I know the guy uh, before he sold it to okay. um, is it Film School Rejects bought it, but yeah. before that, I was the Facebook person running that oh, okay. side of it, and it was around the time this came out, and I became really obsessed. So I was like grabbing some Renoir pictures and then like putting them next to. Um, invisible woman because I was thinking that's what he was he was doing with this it's just a stunning I mean forget you know the film and the storyline it's just from a filmmaking perspective it's just like masterful I think to look at it's it's incredible it's incredibly absorbing and again yeah one of the things I appreciated about it I mean it tells a story that I was not familiar with I mean I I love Charles Dickens I've read most of his books funnily enough Ray Fiennes apparently hadn't. <laughs> He's apparently only read That's like what, one yeah. Charles Dickens book uh, when he made the movie. Um, but uh, which I think is great. I mean, which I think is actually it. It tells you kind of the type of person he is that he would take on something like that. Yeah, and become so absorbed in Dickens's life and mm-hmm. and story uh, and kind of what he was like as a person i mean he kind of saw it as like a character like a fictional character that he's just been introduced to which i think is great um and does i mean not not that i know anything about what charles dickens was like but apparently it's a very kind of authentic portrait of charles not not that we have anybody to tell us oh yeah that's exactly what he was like (laughs) i remember um but he uh again and we talked about this in our interview, uh, in my interview with him, he brings this incredible physicality, this incredible sense of busyness. He's kind of hopping around, running all over the place. And he's yes. always kind of in groups of people and, you know, incredibly vivacious, almost almost anxiously so. There's all, there's this kind of anxiety to his constant busyness. Like it's a restlessness. It's not just physicality and busyness. It's I restlessness. Know. Yeah. And you enter, you started the interview by talking about that, or at least that's how it kind of is, it mm-hmm. appears in the uh, article. And so I'm wondering if maybe you kind of calling attention to it, um, maybe also kind of encouraged him to just get up and do things. Yeah, and and uh, I don't know, subconsciously, but, but yeah, it is a really fast paced, active Charles Dickens Um you know, I, I don't know much about the man myself. And so um, it's not what you would maybe expect going in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I wonder if he, you know, if that helps create this sense of celebrity around him. I mean, he has to be yeah. very magnetic. It, it's interesting because we obviously think of Charles Dickens through the books, incredible exactly. writer, all that. But the film makes the point that, I mean, quite aside from the books, which were obviously very popular in his time, 
he was a real celebrity and he was always mm-hmm. he was doing these things he was giving speeches he was directing plays and yeah. um always involved and always kind of with his adoring public and with his adoring public always kind of you know people were fascinated by him um and it, he kind of has to bring that kind of charisma to the part so that we understand so that we understand how people saw him and also so we understand why she was drawn to him because the yeah. thing about the film is the, you know the thing about the story that it tells is it's not a you know obviously she was young and he was older and he was married i mean you know he's doing all the bad things but mm-hmm. you know the film is not judgmental in that way but it's not no. also you know it's not Super like a romantic swoony, yeah. romantic movie it's kind of like a well Eh, that happened you know yeah and, um, like he's a charismatic figure you can see how somebody would fall under his spell or his sway right um and it's not in a creepy way or anything like that yeah. but no this is not like the english patient or one of those movies where they're coming at this and there's right. there's a lot of heat i mean um he is far more i think affected or far more yeah. in love than she is and i think you brought that up in your your interview as well like yeah you kind of see how she was sort of a muse for great expectations mm-hmm. and um, how she might have inspired some of his work and his life. Yeah. And, you know, there's a couple really beautiful tender moments. Um, but I also like the hesitation and how it sort of shows the difficulties of getting into a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, not even the fact that he's married, but like, are we going to do this? Because there are these obstacles going on. And do I want to do this? Or, um, you know, having to ask yourself these questions. And I think this movie does sort of a mature thing with that. Yeah. Yeah. And it it is, it is a fascinating look at the morality of the time because, you know, and, and I don't think he said this in, my interview um I, he said this in another interview and i think the film makes this clear the thing that they are doing is on some level accepted so yes. long as it's not public mm-hmm. right because there are other people doing it as well and you kind of mm-hmm. see glimpses of that and there is this sort of like understanding that this is not okay but like it's just kind of the way things are yeah um, at the same time it is also a world in which nobody's ever going to make the first move. This is like Victorian England. I mean, I don't know if it's technically Victorian England, but it is, you know, 19th century England. This is not a place where you're just going to like go up and kiss somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Put your arm around, you know, it's just like, it's so how that's navigated is I think fascinating, confusing, riveting, um, cause you know, they're going to get together, <laughs> but you're like, oh, yeah, there's no <laughs> drama. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah. And there's another thing it kind of gets at, which I think is fascinating is, you know, he's full of praise for her mm-hmm. and we know, we understand that he's smitten, but he's also this incredibly charismatic celebrity figure from whom it means a lot to get praise. But yeah. she of course has this doubt which is does, is he praising me because he wants me or is he praising me because he genuinely thinks you know i'm good mm-hmm. with you know, like her acting career and all that and you know and i imagine that i like that it, it even approached that level i thought yeah. that was a nice way to do it yeah yeah and 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 it's and it's 
And I imagine that in relationships where there is that kind of power imbalance, yeah, um, imbalance in terms of both power and public status. esteem and yeah. status and and also age, um, mm-hmm. that there is a kind of like, is he saying nice things about me because Just he because. means it, yeah, or because he feels he has to, or because he yeah. wants me, you know. Um, and I thought that was, you know, I thought the, the film explored that really nicely. Like that was a dilemma that I hadn't sort of um, expected. It seemed very modern. Yeah. It is and a it kind was, of a modern idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a very, I, you know, it must be a very universal idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the powerful have been, <laughs> have been. Yes. Know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and but, but then there's also the other thing, which is like, is she, is she into him because she thinks he's like a wonderful person and you know yeah. beautiful or whatever or is it because he's charles fucking dickens you know and she'll um, be taken care of or she thinks she will be yeah. or her family or whatever yeah uh, because and, i'm sure other people looked at her like that you know yeah and, yeah absolutely. so there is something transactional but that doesn't mean that there isn't also love there because yep. i think watching the film there clearly is but mm-hmm. because of all this other stuff the love it can weighs. never really feel pure yeah right not that love is ever pure, but like, but, yeah, but they yeah. can never really feel truly honest. No. And, um, and I think, you know, she plays it beautifully. Again, yes. Ray Fiennes, incredible director of actors. I mean, this guy should just like, I, I really hope he just keeps directing because he's very was, good at that aspect of it, which is hard. Yeah. Felicity Jones is great. I was going to ask you, I haven't seen the white crow yet. Was that really good? You know, I don't know if I've seen it. Okay. <laughs> I had completely okay. forgotten about it. And I, and I was doing my research. Oh, wait, he did direct a third movie. I was like, did I see it? Like, I, I feel like I did see it, but I don't remember anything about it. Okay. Um, I have to watch yeah. it again. I probably didn't see it. It might be one of those movies. There, you know, there's end of the year you try to catch up with a lot of the awards I know. movies and you know, and like, some just fall under the yeah. Or you or you put it on and it's like the fifth movie of the day and yeah maybe doze off at some yep. point i heard or within 10 minutes you're <laughs> yeah, like yeah. i gotta go to a different one yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 i heard the acting was good you know <laughs> <laughs> exactly well lastly we have a very good film made and released last year by netflix director simon stone's the dig based on author john preston's 2007 novel which stars fines along with carrie mulligan lily james Johnny Flynn, Ben Chaplin, and more in a retelling of the 1939 excavation of Sutton Hoo, where a widowed landowner in Suffolk hires finds Basil Brown to dig up the large burial mounds on her property. So what did you think of this one? I remember I liked it a lot when it came out, but I was really glad to rewatch this one as well. Beautiful film. I love it. I love yeah. it. I really do. Um, I was really surprised when I saw it because I did not expect anything. Um, you know, it was like a January release. It was Netflix. I mean, this was pandemic era, so it wasn't like there were going to be big theatrical screens yeah. of it or anything. But um, I remember um, I put it on. I don't think I even knew what it was about. Well, I think I might have even thought it was a horror movie. Um, and I don't think I, <laughs> I think I, I'd heard who was in it um, before, but I'd kind of forgotten that. Uh, and I was like, oh, the dig, you know, and I, I was I was assigned the review. So I put it on. I was like, oh, Ray Fiennes. <laughs> Can you imagine that, you know, <laughs> oh, period piece. Oh, Carrie Mulligan. Huh. 
did I know this? Um, and then, you know, and like the Sutton Hoo thing, which I did not know that story. I didn't either, um, no. And, uh, and once, and I'm like, they're digging up what? It's like, and I think at some point I'm still like, oh, it's, it, it's I think it took a while for me to realize, oh, this is not a horror movie. <laughs> and if you if you read my review of it, the first part is all about like horror movies and the return of the repressed and all this stuff. And I think I had that because I watched it a couple of times before I reviewed it. So I knew what it was when I was writing the review, but that I still had in the back of my head this idea. Oh, it's 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 not a horror movie, but it maybe supposed to be. I don't know. Um, and uh but I love the film. I think it's so uh, so moving and goes to places I did not expect because it, it, you know, it's it's about this dig and them finding this. I don't know. We call it ancient at this point, but this, you know, with this ancient uh, Anglo-Saxon ship, Anglo-Saxon yeah. ship that was basically a, a burial ground. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, but then. As you know, the, the the war is starting, and the country is mobilizing, and or countries begins to mobilize at some point during the film. But you know, the, the, the impending idea of war is, is in the air, and eventually that idea kind of takes over the story. So they they discover the ship, they discover things about the ship, and what it reveals, what the things they find there reveals about. Uh, anglo-saxon culture uh and the fact that they weren't just like these dumb vikings um Mm -hmm. or whatever um but the uh but as the story proceeds and as kind of the war gathers the film becomes about sort of the idea of like you know the, the 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 intimate and personal versus the grand and historic um and yeah. that fascinating dynamic uh, really is kind of the emotional heart of the movie because there is this, I mean, they, they keep talking about it throughout the film, but the idea that the people who did these things, who built these things are all gone, you know, there's yeah. no, I mean, it, it, it centuries and centuries ago, there is zero trace of them physically, yep. no bones, there's nothing. Um Everything is has vanished. The only things left are these little, you know, trinkets and coins and things like that. And then this ship, yeah, which itself is like, which is this is such a great metaphor. It's like it all it like doesn't really exist because yeah, it's, it's all, like almost a ghost ship. But yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's all all compacted wood, so you mm-hmm. can't really move it. It's it's basically just like dust. <laughs> yeah, but it's but time has kind of created this imprint. And it's sort of there, but if you ever tried to move any parts of the ship, it would just dissolve. Um, and and I'm my God, what a metaphor! I mean, what yes. a metaphor and for what like do, you know? What is our legacy, and right. who who is, should be in charge of that, or um, who should own it? And culture belongs right. to everyone, just yeah. like knowledge does, and it doesn't matter, you know who you are or um, your class or your status. I love that he's self-taught and they have this bond at the beginning because she had been on her father's digs. I know there was some controversy when the film came out with the casting because I guess originally um, the people were both in their fifties. The, yeah, yeah, the widow and um, Basil. um, And 
you know, they, they Carrie Mulligan is in her thirties and right. Rafe is in his fifties. And, you know, there was some question like, why did they have to make her young? You know, yeah. they're just, it's a movie, you know, if you want to know the, the real thing, read a book, basically. It's, it's a movie. Yeah. yeah and, it's and, a movie. It's a great movie. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think it does the first time you're watching it, you're watching it for the relationships. And then the mm-hmm. second time you watch it, you start seeing the, the bigger questions about history and culture and, you know, what is important in life and what do we pass on to each other? And I think it's really beautiful in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, um, Ray Fiennes is, is again, able to do things with that weird, unpredictable quality of his, because you watch him, he's this, I mean, in the broad scheme of the film, after you've seen it, he is this very avuncular, likable figure very sort of you know um mm-hmm. terse gruff yes but yeah. but, but the very embodiment solid. of a frown basically when you yeah. first meet him yeah, yeah. never smiles i mean mm-hmm. ray finds never smiles but but like he's just, <laughs> he's just very but very solid you know kind of salt of the earth type person mm-hmm. but at any given point he could become another type of Ray Fiennes character, right? Yes. At first, at first we didn't know. At first, you don't know what to think of him. It's kind of like, oh, is this going to be like this um, more confrontational relationship? Yeah. And a or is it going to be a love story? Like you're right. not sure where there's it's going. this weird romantic tension between them that's never expressed. Nope. Obviously, never consummated. No. Um, and it's and you don't actually even know if it's really there disrespect, <laughs> um, or, yeah. yeah well because there's that scene you know where she invites him to dinner dinner mm-hmm. and um and he's like sure and then he goes to his room and his wife has arrived right mm-hmm. and and he's like kind of surprised by her um and their interaction isn't particularly affectionate or romantic him and his wife um but he's not a particularly affectionate or romantic figure to begin with like there wasn't any of that between him and carrie mulligan but then you see carrie mulligan um and she sees i think she sees him with his wife or somebody tells him and she's like in her room getting dressed and she's got like her makeup on and she's got the elegant dress on and she's got Mm -hmm. the, the, the jewelry and everything and um and, you know, her butler says that, you know, Basil Brown, you know, senses regrets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there isn't, I mean, the expression on her face doesn't really change. So we no. don't know. Like don't earlier, know if- yeah, when she was alone eating dinner, we saw her all kind of in her finest yeah. too. But yeah, you really don't know what what her thinking was That's and it's point. hard to and it's hard to read because you're kind of like was this a, a a romance that didn't develop yeah or and as we later find out you know she's looking for somebody to take care of her child after she dies that's she knows. true uh, at, at that point though I, I i don't know if you know we kind of find out late or she finds out later that she can't that she's not going to make it um mm-hmm. So we don't know exactly how much she knows about her health at this point. Yeah. Um, but I gather it was some this is something, this was kind of a chronic situation for her. Um, so there is also this whole sense of, you know, does she actually maybe 
want to be with him because she needs a father for her child, you know? Um, we don't know, but we don't need to know. Like, I love the fact that the film lets that, all those ideas kind of hang there. Um, and it wouldn't have worked if Ray Fiennes wasn't Ray Fiennes because he's not a particularly, I mean, he's not a bad looking guy in this movie, but he's, you know, older, yeah, dumpier, you know, he's not like, you don't think of him as a romantic figure, but he's no. Ray Fiennes. Yeah. <laughs> but he is Ray Fiennes, you know, like there's that, <laughs> that, that kind of little movie star quality to him that's still there. You're like, in real life, this would never happen. <laughs> But in this movie, it could happen because he is Ray Fiennes after all. You know, like yeah. there is that like <laughs> that sort of uh, uh, that essence kind of is still there. Mm-hmm. Um, again, with the with the casting situation, um, you know, Nicole Kidman was supposed to do the part. Um, she was. Oh, originally I didn't cast. know that. That's interesting. Yeah, and then and then she dropped out at the last minute, and they got Carrie Mulligan. Um, so she the character was going to be older. Um, and Carrie Mulligan has clearly been sort of made up to look older, but a little you know, bit, yeah, you could yeah. tell. I mean, Carrie Mulligan is already like baby yeah. faced, so yes, <laughs> that's kind of that doesn't true. really work. Um, but you know, it's okay. I don't. It's like yeah, the it film is not a romance. Me. No, the film is mm-hmm. not a romance, and I think maybe if you know, it does sort of. <laughs> you do sort of need that slight charge just to keep that idea in your head. But the film is not a romance. Yeah, maybe with Nicole Kidman, it almost would have been too much, perhaps. I mean, it depends yeah. how she would have played it or how they would have emphasized it. But but yeah, it is definitely not a romance. But um, yeah. it's a great performance. Uh, I read that in the interviews, he was talking like, you know, he didn't direct the film, but he's like, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted somebody there with the Suffolk dialect mm-hmm. instead of just a dialect coach. And I wanted somebody who knew excavation and knew digs. And I wanted this person on the set and this person on the set. So you do get a sense of that Ray mm-hmm. Fine's power of like, I can call the shots of who should be on the set for this movie. Mm-hmm. But he's like, you know, I want to get all the um, things right and have it be authentic. The other thing I was enjoying when I was reading some interviews is uh, the scary scene where he gets like buried. Right. Um, they said to him, like, we can get a stunt person to do this he's like you can just throw dirt on me like you know (laughs) i can be under dirt and so i mean he said they did it very um compassionately and gingerly and just you know kind of nicely put the dirt on him but yeah so he is willing to be buried alive people is what we're saying like yeah he's an intense guy yeah yeah and the film is is authentic to that world you know Mm -hmm. my my grandfather was an archaeologist um and You know, he often uh, I, I often visited his dig with him um, and and would get to sort of stand around while people dug up. He, he my grandfather was, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from Turkey, obviously, and uh, my grandfather was an archaeologist in Turkey, but he was a archaeologist who specialized in ancient Greek ruins. So um, and for much of his career, for like 40 years of his career, possibly longer, he was digging up a town uh, on the. Uh, western coast of turkey called stratonikea which is an mm-hmm. ancient you know hellenic town um which at the time that he first started digging it was considered was thought of as a small small town but you know you have to dig it it's a it's a ruin it's there there's, you know there's things to dig up but as they dug up further and further they realized it was a much much bigger town and they found a huge graveyard and they found a huge um gymnasium uh and it's just it's still still being dug i mean my grandfather died at the age of 
98, you know, mm. a few years ago, but, and he had retired obviously before that, but town still being dug up, you know, um, and it's going to keep being dug up. Uh, and uh, that's amazing. But, you know, this was the th- kinds of things that he would talk to me about, like the idea of, because you're not going to, I mean, there isn't any written stuff, you know, like there isn't mm-hmm. much written stuff about this. So what do you find? You find like little pieces of gold or a piece of jewelry or or an item that someone had. And then you find, you know, you see that item and suddenly that opens up something about these people. Um, and you're never... Um, you know, my, my grandfather wrote a number of books, and the last one he wrote was um, a, a journey through the Trojan War, through uh, the pottery of the of of the Greeks. So, you know, you know, he specialized in that kind of stuff. So you would see like images from the Trojan War in that's you so know, cool earthenware vessels and things like that, and amphora and all these things and vases and things like that, um, and. But like in the end, it wasn't about this item. Obviously, the item is important. You put it in a museum, you preserve it, you make sure that's okay. But it's not the item that's important. It's what the item reveals about the people that's important. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, what I love about the dig because it, there's that tension, right? We're digging up these objects. These are the only things that are left of these people. Mm-hmm. And we are in the midst of this like huge historical conflagration. And we don't know what's going to happen to us we're all going to die eventually and we're going to vanish off the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. And will our lives have had any meaning because all that's left is these objects. But then you look at what archeologists do with those objects and they look at these objects to learn more about the people. So the people are still what's important. Um, The objects that they leave behind are pieces of themselves and they, and their expressions of themselves, even though they're not aspects of their bodies or anything like that. Um, and I, you know, the dig gets at that. And I do think that that is a very moving thing about archaeology and how archaeologists think of the world. And also why. That's beautiful. Yeah. Right. And that's, I mean, it's also how we think. I mean, the archaeologists think of the world in that way because that is actually what's important to us, to all of yes. us, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, because, yeah. you know, I mean, it's the, it's anything about history is it, ultimately only important insofar as it reveals anything about the people around it um who lived at the time so um so yeah i think that that's that's one of the i mean the the dig has its share of little flaws scenes oh, that yes, don't quite of work course, but yeah and there's some stuff that's like it kind of rushes through the story and you know yeah some of the stuff multiple with the story museum and yeah right. and some of the characters but other than that it's a really good film and i think it's one a lot of people overlooked uh, or yeah. miss. So it is on Netflix. We encourage you to check that out. Obviously, I know that there, we mentioned a lot of other movies with Ray Fiennes along the way, but these were the only ones we had time for. Otherwise, I would have kept him here, you here for yeah. like a, a week. Uh, but as a final piece of advice, are there any roles or movies you want to be sure to recommend those listening seek out? like high on the list there are so many of them I you know? know there are so many of them i mean like we didn't do in bruges because we had done it with we the had Colin done Carroll it thing. yeah he's so good in bruges the best character so introduction in like you hear his voice yeah. and then it takes forever for us to see him and what an yeah. intro yeah yeah i mean that's the thing if we hadn't already done in bruges we totally yes. would have done in bruges um you know english patient not a movie i like very much um, no i'm more yeah. interested in like the supporting players right. in that film yeah but same 
Yeah, but Big he's movie. great. Yeah. Um, and then uh, and then a movie, I, you know, we were going to do The Constant Gardener. Um, and then I it watched The Constant Gardener. didn't hold up as Gardner. much. Yeah, yeah I, I watched it again last night myself. And, you know, I liked it more than you did, but yeah. but it, it does not. I think it played better the first time I saw it back then. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't remember what I thought of it back then. I, I can't remember if I liked it back then. I know I was kind of not a huge Fernando Mayores fan. I was not like a big City of God fan. Um, and that's another movie I need to watch again. But, but Oh, I love that film. But that's just me probably. Uh, no, people love that movie. <laughs> I, mean, I, was, I felt I was very much like the one person who was crazy <laughs> about that movie when it came out. Um, and, uh, and then... But I feel like I think I liked The Constant Gardener more. Mm-hmm. But then I, I watched it again, like after we said we would do this, that was the first one I rewatched. And I was like, this mm. stinks. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think She's I like it. She's really this. good. I think like we could have done a whole episode just on her performance, basically, uh, yeah. Rachel Weiss. But um, other than that, no. It's just, yeah. I mean, I love John McCarthy. Heavy handed. I mean, and yeah. It's, it's yeah. Black. It's just, it just doesn't really work, huh? Um mm-hmm. Anyway, that was that was the one. The 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 one part that I I will always appreciate uh, with Ray Fiennes is he is a great Voldemort. He um, really is, yeah. And, and he um, is it uh, the fourth one is the one when he shows up for the first time right at the end. Mm-hmm. And that is a that is a terrible movie. I can't remember. I can't remember which what the title of it. The fourth Harry Potter movie is like is it Goblet of Fire, Order of the Phoenix? Which one is it? Um, I think I, it I, might I, be. Let me see. Yeah, you have it. That's the one Mike Newell directed, I believe. Yeah, that was not my favorite either. Uh, Goblet of Fire was Goblet his of Fire. Yeah, it's the worst yeah. of them, I think. Um, yeah, but um, he shows up. I think it's that one. Yeah. Uh, where he shows up, he's got this one big scene at the end. Um, and it's almost like it's like a dream vision of him, but but you know, he's like, you know, um, he's I mean, and he's covered in makeup, I mean, he's covered in the Voldemort makeup. Mm-hmm. And the film was so inert, uh, but then that scene comes at the end, and you're like, oh, Whoa. fuck, yeah. <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh. I, uh, I, yeah, I need to see on these board movies. for the next one. Yeah, yeah. Like bring it on. Let's, let's do this everybody. Um, I mean, he is so dynamic and just charged and incredible and menacing and just terrifying in that scene. Mm-hmm. And just so again, that Ray finds physicality and energy and intensity that he brings to a part and power. It just sends the entire thing to a new level. It sends the whole series to a new level. You know, I was not, I was not a big Harry Potter person. Like I didn't read the books. No, you know, the, I liked them, time. but I, I wasn't obsessed. Yeah, yeah, and and but I did watch the movies as they came out because very often, you know, I had to review them. Yep. Um. So, and I remember the first one. I was like, "What the hell? This is really boring." Uh, <laughs> and the second one, I was like, "Yeah, eh, it's still not good." And then Quaron, yeah, yeah, which I don't love the Quaron, oh, but, but <laughs> it was better than the yeah. others. Um. You know, and it was interesting. And then I, yeah. you know, and then like the fourth one is terrible. And then, uh, the fifth one is not good either, if I remember correctly. But, but the the last three <laughs> were fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I'm getting the number right. I don't remember how many of them there were. But like the the last two, um, the Deathly Hollows films were very the Deathly good. Hollows one two, and then Half Blood Prince. Mm-hmm. Um, right? Yeah, the Half Blood Prince was the one before that. Um, those last three I thought were were terrific. Um, 
So I, I and I did rewatch them at some point because my son wanted to see them. Uh, mm-hmm. So he never he didn't read the books either, but uh, but he did want to watch the movies, and I I went through them with him. But um, he's he's a terrific Voldemort. I mean, that is great casting. <laughs> it's he perfect. Is, yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, and I guess he wasn't going to do it. Um, he didn't know anything about Harry Potter, and it was his sister. Who you know had read the books with her kids, and she's like, you know, and it kind of schooled him in on exactly what it was. And you know, this is such. Do you know what they're asking you to do? That role, like, and kind of leveled with him on what it would mean, and that made him excited. Yeah, which I found. And funny. it's yeah. I mean, there are so many great stories like that of of um, actors who take on iconic roles unwittingly, yeah. you know, or for weird reasons yeah for weird reasons or because like uh you know like they're not gonna do it there's some other big part like that that somebody didn't was gonna not do and then like either their kids or they're like there's you know or like their sister's kids like you know like somebody was just like are you kidding me no you're gonna do this (laughs) i can't remember i can't remember what it was yeah um, but uh but yeah i mean he's he's great i mean he does actually like He's reason enough to watch those movies, the ones yep. that he's in. Um, he's reason enough to watch, you know, Goblet of Fire. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so that's another one I would think of. I mean, there's so many, there's so many great. Ones. I have not seen the menu yet. Um, I haven't either. He, no, it's supposed to be terrific, and he's supposed to be terrific in it. So I'm very excited to see that one. Um, Grand Budapest yeah. Hotel, obviously. Oh, he is great. Could have, been a, could have been a good one. Yeah, I remember liking The Duchess, but it's been so long since I've seen it, and I probably need to watch it again. Yeah. Yeah, was, yeah. the White Duchess or just The Duchess? I mean, that's uh, the, the there's Merchant a Ivory White movie, right? Countess. White and, Countess, um, right, right, right. The sorry. Duchess is the one I was right. thinking of with Kira Knightley, I believe. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah. he was good in that. Um, yeah, and, uh, and Spider... David Spider was Spider, good, yeah. Which is a great performance and yeah. a, a movie that really is basically entirely built around his performance. Mm-hmm. Um, Haven't not seen a movie it since then, but yeah, and, you no, know, and and not a movie I remember as being a pleasant watch. No, <laughs> so I did not offer that one because I know we discussed yeah. it potentially, and I was kind of like, I don't know if I want to watch yeah. Spider again. right now during. <laughs> he's great at it, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, award that's season when films are heavier anyway. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um uh, lots of great roles I know and when we were logging on you're like made in Manhattan even or just right. these different things he did. I was thinking he's even in Lego Batman movie and you know his voice and Oh right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. yeah and and he's does he yeah, uh, has he done a superhero movie? I can't remember. I don't think so, right? Has he? I don't I don't know. I, I mean I mean you 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 mentioned obviously the Batman. He's the voice of Alfred, right? In one of them. Um I think so. Yeah. Um in uh right yeah right. In, in one of the in one is um I'm, i was gonna say lego batman is he in lego is like, i which, think which it's one? lego batman it is lego yes. okay yeah which is kind of perfect too but yeah um you know all these actors they uh they wind up doing a couple of big franchise movies i think basically as a uh retirement plan <laughs> instead, sure. instead of instead of 401ks they basically have a franchise that's just gonna yes. give the money the rest yeah. of their lives i um, know so. perfect yeah well i want to thank you so much for doing this i always enjoy talking to you i learned so much and this was a real treat so thank you so much 
Thank you. Uh, I'm really glad we did this. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.